Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Volga. There is a mystery, a charm in all mighty rivers, which has ever made us gaze upon them with an interest beyond that inspired by other great and glorious sights. But to look on the largest of European rivers gave a thrill of joy surpassing all former pleasure of the kind. This quote by Robert Bremner in 1830 opens Professor Janet M. Hartley's latest history, The Volga, a history of Russia's greatest river. The book uses the Volga to frame the history of Russia from its pre-Russian state through the growing Russian Empire and ending with the Soviet Union and today's Russian Federation. The book presents the Volga both as a divider between East and West, but also as a meeting ground of different cultures and ideas, and how that drove efforts to create a Russian identity. Janet M. Hartley is a professor emeritus of international history at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she has worked for over 30 years. She is the author of seven books on Russian history, including Siberia, A History of the People, published by Yale University Press in 2014. She's also edited or co-edited seven books and written many articles on Russian history in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Today, Jan and I talk about the Volga and its central place in Russian history. We'll talk about how the Volga connects to trade, cultural exchange, and the formation of the Russian state and identity. Finally, we'll explore what we gain by looking at a country's history through a geographical feature like a river. So, Janet, thank you so much for joining me today. Perhaps it's best to start with perhaps the star of the book, uh, the Volga River. Could you tell us about the Volga? Where does it start? Where does it end? What are the regions and towns of Russia that we're looking at when we studied the Volga? Well, yes, the river is definitely the star. Thank you, Nicholas. The source of the river is in the Valdai Hills between Moscow and St. Petersburg. The river then flows east and north to Rubinsk, which is on a, a massive reservoir, I mention that because that's part of the canal structure which then takes goods from the Volga to St. Petersburg and then uh, out to the rest of the world. It then flows east to Nizhny Novgorod, which is known for its fair in the 19th century. And in fact, that quotation that you started with by Bremner is from Nizhny Novgorod. He goes there to look at the fair. Further east to Kazan, now the capital of Tatarstan within the Russian Federation, and then the river turns south, south round a great bend to Samara, the great bend that was known for uh, pirates and piracy in the 18th century. Then down to Saratov, which was the headquarters of the German residents on the Volga, to Volgograd, perhaps better known as Stalingrad, and then Astrakhan in the south. And it flows out from Astrakhan through a delta to the Caspian Sea. It flows the wrong way. It flows north to south. But most goods, when we come to talk about the economic value of the Volga, go south to north. And that's why in popular perception of the Volga, you see paintings of people dragging the boats upstream, although in practice they were mostly dragging them off sandbanks. It's the longest river in Europe. It's not the longest river in Russia, but it's the longest river in Europe longer than the Danube, and considerably longer than the Rhine. So, I mean, what makes the Volga then so central to the history of, of Russia? 
um, and this is an audio podcast, so I'm putting Russia in, in air quotes, but Russia both as the country and also kind of the that whole region. Um, yeah. Well, on the first level, it is a, an economic value. And although I focus on, on the river, there are other great rivers like the Kama and the Oka, which flow into the Volga. And so, in fact, the Volga is important, not just for the area that it immediately serves and, and the routes, the trade routes, but also really for the whole sort of basin, the water basin of European Russia. So it's key economically. But I think one of the factors that I try to bring out in the book is how key it is for the development of the, the Russian state, the Russian empire, and then for the Soviet Union as well. And it's, it's important in the post-Soviet uh, position as well. So I think in terms of what we historians like to call state building, the Volga, particularly the middle and the lower Volga, are absolutely crucial because that's the first significantly non-ethnically Russian, non-Christian part of, of Russia, which is conquered by what had been Muscovy, Russia, by Ivan the Terrible. And the way in which they incorporate that into the Russian state really sets the scene for how the Russian Empire then treats other borderlands and other non-Russian peoples. So the cultural significance we'll come back to, but I think economically and politically, it's a, a key element in the development of the Russian state. So your book characterizes the Volga both as a divide between Europe and Asia and also as a meeting ground between different cultures. I'm, I'm going to pull some lines from your from your introduction here. Um, you know, for example, uh, although the River Volga was never the geographical border between Asia and Europe, in many ways the Middle and Lower Volga does draw a line between the Christian, Russian, European West and the Islamic and Asiatic East. And then a few, a few, the next paragraph you say, however, it's not simply an East-West Europe-Asia divide. It was also a meeting place and to an extent a melting pot of many different peoples within first the multi-ethnic, multi-confessional Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. Um, so I guess how do these two aspects of the Volga, how do they interact and how is that reflected in, in, in the history you talk about in the book? It's a good question. I think it, it is a dividing line or it is perceived as a dividing line. Catherine the Great, her first progression round Russia in 1767, she went down the Volga. And when she got to Kazan, she wrote to Voltaire and she said, I am in Asia. Now, she wasn't in Asia. Kazan is in Europe. The whole of the river is in European Russia. But this was a, a cultural perception. And it was because Kazan had been and still was in some ways a Tartar town because the Tartars were Muslim. And Catherine was entertained in a a way that we would now regard as rather gruesome, I think, by lots of non-ethnic Russians performing dances in front of her. So it was a cultural statement. And I think certainly south of Kazan, just physically, the two sides of the river look very different. On the one side, what we would call the European side, the western side, it's quite fertile uh, ground. On the eastern side, it's much more arid. And certainly in Catherine's reign in the 1760s, when German settlers were located on, the, on that middle part of the Volga, the ones who were on the eastern side felt disadvantaged. The land was worse. They were subjected to raids from nomadic uh, traders, nomadic uh, peoples, and they felt that somehow they were in Asia instead of in, in Europe. So I think it is certainly a divide, not in the north, but in the lower part of the Volga, but it is also a great meeting place because it's a great river. People traded up and down the river. The Vikings came down the river. People had to interact with each other. And one of the things I try to bring out in the book is where and how people interacted and where they stayed separate. 
so that in towns you can have separate quarters for Tartars or for Chuvash, but there had to be some interaction, legally, in trade. Villages tended to be much more separate. I think those distinctions between Christian villages, Muslim villages, Russian villages, German villages, Tartar villages stayed much more acute than in, in an urban setting. But nevertheless, there had to be some contact. There was some trade, there was some influence on what people ate, how they dressed, what sort of festivities they had. So I tried to bring out the complexity of that throughout the book. And it's a complexity which still exists because today all these areas are within the Russian Federation, but there are autonomous regions, republics within that, Tatarstan, Chuvash, Mari. And in that respect, it, it still demonstrates that the diversity, the complexity, the problems, if you like, of a country which we tend to see as European Russia. Yeah, that's right. And I think something something that's very clear in reading your book is it definitely um, digs into this idea of Russia as this big, let's call it like an ethnic monolith, when in fact, um, the truth is quite the opposite. As you know, there's a lot of diversity in that region, um, a lot of diversity that's reflected in politics, although changing over time, which we will get into, I think, later in this interview. Um, but before we get into, I think, the your discussions of uh let's call it the, the state-building aspect of Russia and then the Soviet Union. I'd like to maybe ask you to explain some of the pre-Russian history um, of, of, of this region. Yes, I'm, I'm an imperial Russian historian. I make no claims to be a medievalist or a specialist in the Bulgars or the Khazars. But in order to write this book, I had to have at least a, a couple of introductory chapters to explain the background and to explain that the Volga is not just a Russian river, it had also been a Khazar river, a Bulgar river. So it's difficult, of course, to reconstruct the history in, in the way that you can when you have proper written histories. But certainly there are what we might call in modern parlance states on the Volga before the Russians were there. The earliest one I look at is Khazaria from the 7th century and then from the 9th century, Bulgar. Uh, and then after the Mongol invasion, there's a, a, the, the, the Horde is, is in the Volga region. And then by the mid-15th century, that breaks down to two Khanates, Kazan and Astrakhan. Now that's a sort of potted history, jumping through centuries. But the significance really is, firstly, that these people were not ethnically Russian, mostly Turkic, then Mongols, possibly some European mixed Turkic background from the Bulga area. The other significance is how important the river was to all these states. All the capital cities of these early states were on the Volga, and they were on the Volga because of the importance of trade, and it was that which made these states form on the Volga, and it was that which attracted traders from all sorts of other countries to them as well. So the first one I look at, Kazaria, the capital, which is called Ital, which is the, the name they gave to the River Volga, is on the river in the south. We're not quite sure where it is, but archaeological remains suggest it's probably just north of the, the delta now with Astrakhan. Bulgar, the next really quite important, significant state, uh, still exists. It's about 100 miles south of, of Kazan. It's on the Volga. It's very important now for Tatar identity because they trace their roots in the Volga back to Bulgar and not to the Mongols. 
And that was a great economic centre as well. And it was a centre where the, the leaders of the country became uh, Muslim in, in the, the late 10th century. And then after the Mongol invasions, again, the first capital was in the south, probably near Astrakhan. And then you had Khanates of Astrakhan and Kazan. So the whole reason for those states really existing and for people being attracted to them was the river and the trade that was provided by that river, which in the earlier period was silver coins, uh, timber, weapons, uh, and then as time emerged, more sort of foodstuffs, timber. So in that respect, the Volga is central to those states. And indeed, the fact that the Russian Empire conflicts with those states is to do with control of the river and control of that crucial trade. Even before Ivan the Terrible conquered Kazan, they'd set up towns like Nizhny Novgorod in the 13th century really to dominate uh, the river. And the conflict was about conflicting power between Kazan and Russia, but it was also centred on the river. And once Ivan the Terrible had conquered Kazan in 1552, he then went on to conquer Astrakhan so that he could get control over the whole of the river. But I think it's still relevant today, the fact that now we think of this area as much more Russian, but it had this heritage which was both non-Russian and non-Christian. But as I say, it was centred on, on the importance of the river. Well, now let's get into um, the history of the Volga in the context of, you know, the let's say state formation for Imperial Russia um, and later the, the Soviet Union. Um, which is really the the meat of the history, I think. Um, I guess could you could you kind of chart that path? So after after Russia conquers these regions, takes these regions over, what does it then do to kind of again to kind of, to kind of build the state, build the Russian state in in this part of the in, in this part of Russia? It's crucial they do build the Russian state, of course, because they've got control of the river, but they haven't got control of any of the lands to the either side of it. So it goes in, in waves. The first thing that, Ali, that Ivan the Terrible does, almost inevitably, is, is to slaughter people. Once he's taken Kazan, he slaughters the inhabitants, he expels the Tartars from Kazan, and he builds an Orthodox cathedral. He may lays the foundation for an Orthodox cathedral immediately. So there you've got, in, if you like, some of the elements of what later becomes the state building of the Russian Empire. Force, uh, but also the importance of an, an orthodox Russian presence marked by the building of an orthodox cathedral. And some of the first settlers who asserted themselves on the Volga were monasteries because the fishing was very good. They could uh, exact tolls of people going up and down the, the river and, and they could control the land. And that's a way of Russian presence. If I characterise the Russian Empire on the Volga, then I suppose one characterises it in two ways. There's the element of force and the element of, of persuasion, cultural assimilation. And I can say that for the Russian Empire, you could say that for the Soviet Union as well. If I go back to the Russian Empire, the first element of force is one that you'd expect in a way. It's building garrison towns, fortified towns on the river, at key points on the river, usually at the confluence of another river. So although we have some old towns on, on the, the Volga, places like Kazan and Astrakhan, many of the, the towns that we now see as prominent towns on the Volga were forts founded by the Russians, stockades, Saratov, Samara, and lines of forts were built across the countryside and down the river to assert Russian power, and then garrisons were, were added to those forts. 
So there was that assertion of power, and that power element continues. I'd say through the 18th century, through to the early 19th century, that there's a constant challenge to Russian power, whether it's from pirates on the river, Cossack revolts in the 18th century, uh, tribesmen, no guys or Kalmucks who attack settlements. And bit by bit, the Russian state establishes a greater military control over the region and subdues groups which are antagonistic or seen as antagonistic. So that force element is there. But at the same time, you have to have a more solid presence. Bureaucracy goes hand in hand with force. So Russian administrators, Russian officials, Russian legal systems and structures, at least at the, the top of the, of the, the echelons, that's important. And then you physically have to have more Russians. As the 18th century progresses, the whole of the Volga area becomes more Russified. It still has large numbers of Tatars, but Russian nobles are given land, and the land on the, the west side of the Volga is very productive, so they're given land. They bring their peasants with them, their serfs with them, so that by the 18th century, the, the number of, of Russian peasants, ethnically Russian peasants, as opposed to non-Russian uh, peasants, increases. That's another way of asserting your, your presence, your control over the area. And then there are what you might call the more subtle ways of, of controlling territory, partly out of necessity, because there's a limitation to how much soldiers can keep down any potential revolts. The towns look Russian. Russian architecture's introduced. By the 19th century, Russian cultural institutions are set up, libraries, theatres. Russian language becomes more and more important for anybody who wants to make some sort of career. There's that type of infiltration. And then finally, there's a, a crucial question of Christianity vis-a-vis -vis Islam. It goes in waves, depending on the characters of the Tsar, the particular situation. Quite often, the relationship between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, which of course is, is Muslim, is a key factor. There's a fear that perhaps Muslims could become fifth columnists, that they're not truly loyal to the Russian Tsar. So at various times, from the time that the, the, the second half of the 16th century, right through to the 20th century, there are sporadic attempts to convert Muslims, sometimes very intense, sometimes not so intense. And then from the, the 80, late 18th century onwards, certainly the 19th century, there are terrible fears that some of these converted Tatars, some of these converted Muslims are going to reconvert back to Islam. So that, that tension is there the whole time. And it generates, amongst other things, a vast amount of bureaucracy as the Russian Empire tries to grapple, sometimes with something which seemed to us might tiny, perhaps one family is suspected in one village of reconverting back to Islam. And this might generate 50 pages of documentation from the local police and then from the governor. So that element, force, persuasion, the underlying tensions is there in the imperial period. The Soviet period is rather different, simply because policies are, uh, are imposed on the whole of the Soviet Union, rather than being targeted, particularly at the, the Volga region. But the Volga is still quite crucial, because it's crucial in terms of who wins the civil war. Had the 
whites managed to meet on the Volga, perhaps the outcome would have been different. It's crucial in the Second World War, which I think we'll come back to. But it's also crucial economically, so that when collectivization takes place, or when mass industrialization takes place, that the Volga is central to both those processes. And I think also this sort of ethnic conflict, potential ethnic conflict, is dampened down in the Soviet Union because it's, it's Soviet, it's not Russian, and it's not nominally Christian either. But nevertheless, the, the tensions are there under the surface. They are autonomous regions within uh, the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. And then post the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's been a, a reassertion of cultural identity, economic identity in some cases, particularly in areas like Tatarstan. So those problems that were there in the 16th century continue with different policies, different outcomes, but the same tensions are always there. This is part of Europe, part of European Russia, and yet you still have large numbers of people who are not ethnically Russian, who are not Orthodox. And the way in which the state deals with that tells you a great deal about the way the state operates. Um, I'd like to quickly talk about, um, I guess, the Volga's place in Russian culture, um, the Russian identity. I mean, you, you, you cite it becomes kind of Mother Volga, um, the symbol of this symbol of Russia. Um, how does the river become so central to, I guess, Russia's conception of itself and the Russian identity? Well, you could argue that some of it is imposed from above, although I think there has to be slightly uh, careful about that. But the, the first time that the Volga really appears in uh, Russian imperial thinking is the need to control the river. And that's there actually in Ivan the Terrible. Some of the folk stories that are told about Ivan after the conquest of Kazan talk about him taming the river, lashing the river into obedience, because it's Ivan the Terrible, it's the sort of thing he did. In Catherine the Great's reign, in the second half of the 18th century, it's slightly more subtle. But there are formal odes written to Catherine in the late 18th century, as she progresses down the Volga, which talk about her taming the river, how the river bends to the sovereign will. Now, they're, they're ghastly poems. You wouldn't sort of read them now, but it, but it shows that the river had to be controlled and that Catherine has to project herself in some way as, as the, the empress of all of Russia and the empress of this river. So it's already there in consciousness as a, a very important geographical feature. In the 19th century, with Romanticism, it becomes much more Mother Russia, Mother Volga. Now, that's not exclusive to Russia, of course. In London, we have Father Thames, but it's not quite the same. I think in the 19th century, poetry about the river talks about it as a mother, about Russians as, as the children of the river, about the mother protecting Russia, that that element of protection is very, very strong. And it starts really with the Napoleonic invasion of Russia, although, of course, he doesn't get to the Volga. But it's this sense of uh, being a, a boundary that protects Russia. That is repeated in art as well. I think Russians come to discover in the 19th century that they actually have got beautiful territory. They don't no longer have to feel inferior to the beauty, say, of, of the Alps or uh, the, the archaeological remains of Greece and, and Italy. And they start to discover the beauty of the river and that it's something special. And that makes them feel that it's something special as well about Russia. And late 19th century, there are a lot of 
Russian tourists who go up, up and down the river, not just English tourists, and rediscover the Volga. So I think that that's why it becomes so important. In the Soviet period, it has to be projected, of course, not as a, a Russian river, but as a Soviet river, protecting the Soviet people. Uh, and that's then why it becomes so important in the Battle of Stalingrad. But even before that, there's a, a film, Volga Volga, which came out in the 1930s, which is frightening in many ways, because this was a, a time of, of appalling suffering and collectivization. And it's a film about so sort of jolly peasants going up the Volga singing and dancing. But that was an immensely popular film. So it, it clearly there was a, a response to it amongst ordinary people and a feeling that it was something special, something you could hold on to, be proud of, uh, whatever else was happening all around. That's why it becomes part of Russian identity. But I think I have to, to stress that it isn't just a Russian river. There's also a Chuvash river. It's also a, a Tartar river. And I think I have to admit here that I can only access that sense of how they regard the river through other languages, because I don't know Tartar or Chuvash, so either through translation into Russian or translation into English. But there has, in fact, been translations of Chuvash poetry and of, and of Tartar poetry, and we can get a sense that, that the river also belongs to non-Russians. But there are far more Russians, of course, than there are Tartars and Chuvash, so the overall impression, sense of identity, links it very, very strongly with Russia. And indeed, uh, Tartars could even be rueful about this. It, it's, they say they're told it's a Russian river, whereas in fact, you know, they feel it's also a Tartar river. And it is an immensely powerful river. I think it would be hard for anybody, actually, not to see the, the breadth of the Volga, the length of the Volga, and not think it was something important and special. So I don't think this was a, an identity thing that had to be forced in any way. I think people responded to it naturally. Quickly, I, I was going to say, there, there, there's something about the image of, of taming a river that I think must be very appealing to to kings, emperors, etc. Well, I guess even any government. I'm, I'm reminded of the of the legendary Chinese emperor Yu the Great, who was also credited with taming the rivers of China. Um, there's something about this image that I think must, I mean, governments and rulers must find very appealing. Um, but I'd like to kind of end our discussion of, of the history of the book um, with the Battle of Stalingrad, which we've hinted at several times throughout this interview. Um, the Battle of Stalingrad is likely a turning point, not just for Russian slash Soviet history, but for global history as well. Um, what makes the Volgas and then the Battle of Stalingrad so, so critical in our understanding of the Second World War? Well, the Battle of Stalingrad is, is critical, of course. It is the, mm. the big turning point in the Second World War, not just because the Germans are defeated, but because they're, they're defeated on such a, a massive scale with such a, a loss of life and a loss of, of, of equipment. And I, I do, of course, focus on, on the Battle of Stalingrad, but I'm not the only person who's written about the Second World War or about Stalingrad. Others have written in more detail about the actual battle. When I look at it in this book, I try to look at the significance of the river in particular. Stalingrad, Volgograd, is, written, is built on the western side of the river. There's no town on the eastern side of the river. And the Battle of Stalingrad took place on that western side of the river. The Germans never controlled the, the Volga and they never crossed the river. 
and that was key to hemming them in until they could be attacked from, from the rear. And I think both the German side and the Russian side saw this as both symbolic and strategic. It was clearly strategically important. So you had to control the whole of the town to, to control that point of the river. But it was symbolic as well. There are reports of German officers when they reached the banks of the Volga saying this is the furthest east of the Third Reich. Beyond this great river, there is Asia. So they saw it as a divide. And the Russians did as well. There's a, a very famous poster of the time with a, a Soviet soldier on it saying, defend Mother Volga. And I think in, in popular perception, that's what it was about. It was defending that great border, even though, in fact, in practice, the German soldiers wouldn't have, have walked further east. They would have gone south. So I think both strategically and symbolically, it became very, very important uh, to both both sides. And I think it's quite significant that after the battle, when the town was reconstructed, there's these vast memorials to the Battle of Stalingrad. And there's one frieze there which shows the Germans on the other side of the Volga. And that's a frieze saying German prisoners of war being led off over the river. Now, why do that unless the river is crucially important to the sort of survival, if you like, of the Soviet Union to, to morale as much as just a, a simply a strategic point in the battle. Um, so there's something you mentioned in, in your answer to this previous question, which was obviously many people have written about the Battle of Stalingrad, but you wanted to center the River Volga as, as in, in the story that that river plays in the battle and the broader scope of the war. Um, and of course, this is marked by your book in general, which uses the Volga as a way to to study, to analyze, to explain Russian history. Um, and I wanted to dig into that idea a little bit more as, as the last question in our interview. Um, you know, one might expect a history of the United States would look very different if you centered it around the Mississippi River, for example, or histories of China would look different if you look at the Yangtze or the Yellow Rivers. Um, how do you think our understanding of a country's history changes if we center it around a geographical feature like a river? What are what are some of the insights you gain? Well, I think it is a it's a very good question. It's a crucial question because I'm sitting in London as a English person with no Russian background whatsoever, writing about Russia. And in my earlier work, I did concentrate quite heavily on one of the obsessions of the West, which is why Russia became a great power in the 18th century, in the early 19th century. That's an, a purely Western perception, if you like, of Russia. And then when I wrote internally on Russia, it's very easy to write about Moscow and St. Petersburg, what's happening in Moscow and St. Petersburg, rather than any other part of the country. And in fact, not just Western scholars, but Russian scholars themselves also tend to concentrate on those sorts of areas, because that's where the most documentation exists. So if you look, for example, at works on the emancipation of the serfs, a lot of it centres on Russia, ethnic Russians, simply because the records that we have, the best records that we have, come from the greatest serf estates and the greatest serf owners were ethnic Russians. So I don't think it's just Westerners. I, I think it's, it's a tendency of historians to go for where the sources are and to project a country through that vision. And I wanted to look at Russia through a different prism, through the, through the river. 
And at first, I wasn't quite sure, if I'm honest, just what I would find about it, particularly because the river is very different as it flows through different cities and different towns. But I think it did give me a very different perspective on Russia and one that is neglected, I think, when one talks about Russia. It gave me a perspective on the multi-confessional, multi-ethnicity of the Russian Empire, even within European Russia, without having to go out to Siberia and the Far East and the Caucasus and the Baltic states, even within European Russia, you had to cope with this very diverse ethnic population and a Muslim population. You had to assert the nature of the state, but you also had to accept these people were there. You couldn't just eliminate them or ignore it as a problem. You had to adapt to it in some ways. And I think that's taught me more about the way in which the empire functioned than probably anything else that, that I've looked at. How on the ground they dealt with these particular problems, how they asserted themselves, how they manifested Russian power, but what the limitations were and how they adapted to that when force wasn't the only solution. So I think that although I've looked at the economy in this book and although I've looked at Russian identity, I think probably in the end that that's probably the best way in which something like a river tells you the story of Russia by looking at how the empire and then how the Soviet Union deals with this complexity, if you like, of, of non-Russian territory uh, within Russia and within the Soviet Union. And, and that's a contemporary problem as well, how Putin deals with Tatarstan, uh, what conflicts there might be within the Russian Federation, uh, what issues of identity are there if, if uh, Tatars now feel themselves to be different and separate because they're Muslim and not Orthodox Christian. So looking at the river in that way, I think, gives a very different perspective on Russia. It's from below. It's how people lived. It's how towns functioned. It's how bureaucracy functioned at a local level. But in the end, I think this, this tells you simply how, how the state functioned, both in the imperial period and the Soviet period. And to me, that, that was the purpose of writing the book. So thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Janet Hartley, author of The Volga, A History of Russia's Greatest River. One actual final question. Um, Janet, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Well, it's easy to find uh, the book. It's published by Yale University Press. It's available from any good bookseller, as they say, but from Amazon and uh, from things like The Guardian Bookshop. What next is a hard one to answer because we've all been in an extraordinary situation for the last year and a bit. I've hardly moved out of the house because my husband is very high risk, so we've been isolating. And oddly enough, what I've done during lockdown is to start looking at perhaps what I should have looked at years ago, which is British history. And I've been looking at a lot of records from a period that I have a particular interest in, the Napoleonic period, to see how Russia and Britain compared in the way they recruited soldiers, the way they dealt with veterans, the way they funded their wars. So I don't know, maybe something will come of that. And perhaps after 30 years of studying Russian history, of teaching Russian history, of, of Russian history being my career, uh, perhaps it's about time that I looked at Britain as well as Russia. Well, there's always time to, to study something new. Um... You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N.
You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and you're listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. You want to support us, continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Dr. Eugenia Cheng, author of X Plus Y, A Mathematician's Manifesto for Rethinking Gender. But before then, thank you so much, Janet, for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and a privilege.